Thanks for downloading this podcast from The Rock of York. We hope it inspires you. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at The Rock of York, or search for The Rock of York on Facebook. And of course, there's the website at www.rockofyork.co.uk. But you probably already knew that. Here's something you might not know. Okay, um, I want to talk to you tonight about about the um, Exodus principle. Um, it's something I've been turning over in my own mind, thinking about and looking at, um, even more so in the context of our conversation about um, uh, atonement theories. Um, and um, you realise within that context that there are certain factors that shape thinking and um, in in the context of of the Jewish influence which is obviously very significant in the context of what we understand as Christianity a lot of people call it Judeo-Christian I you've heard my thoughts on this before I I I, um, I beg to to differ on on that um, assessment but um, the root of what we believe did come through through a Jewish channel. Therefore, because of that, there are certain things that we have to understand that were working in their minds that when the Bible talks about certain things, it's predominantly flowing from, from that Jewish perspective. Um, and of course, when, when Paul gets involved, then you've got other people like the Corinthians, the Galatians, the Colossians, all those guys um, who had a, mostly the predominant influence there was Greek so we have to look at um, principles in Scripture through some of those lenses in order to come up with a proper conclusion and not one we've invented through Western thinking. So um, this also connects and is an extension to um, the New Covenant and I think it's an, a vital part that we need to grasp um, because it is not just a Jewish thing which you'll see as we kind of open this up. So... So a few little um, thoughts to open it up. That Exodus to the Jewish mind is more than the name of a book. Okay, Genesis, Exodus, okay. it's more than the name of a book. Um, to them it's an event through which just about everything related to their identity is viewed. So if you don't have a perspective on, on the Exodus principle, you are not going to draw correct conclusions from how the Jewish mind really works. Um, the Exodus, actually, as an event, okay, rather than Exodus, the book. And you understand what we mean by Exodus. It's the children of Israel who were in captivity in Egypt for 400 years, who were then delivered from Egypt. How, and of course, involved in that is the, is the whole blood thing of the lamb that had to be killed and its blood put on the doorposts and lintels. And I would still argue that, that the context of that blood was more to do with covenant than it was to do with cleansing. Um, and we'll continue that conversation as we, as we go on as a, a people because it's very important. But, but the Exodus, the Exodus, the event, has actually four whole books devoted to recording its every detail. So Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy... 
um, are really devoted to to every little detail of what constitutes the the Exodus, okay? Because Exodus starts at the beginning of Exodus, hence the reason why it's called Exodus, which the word means, you know, uh, bringing out, to be brought out. So the, the... the start of this whole story is Exodus, which is named after the event, but then Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy all give the detail, because some of those are intimate details of, of families and genetics and the law and the minor points of the law and the major points of the law and priesthood and all that are all to do um, with, the, with the detail of Exodus. So... <clears throat> Um, it's interesting, therefore, that its importance within the grand scheme of things should be revealed several hundred years before it was to happen. <clears throat> so Exodus, the, the, the Exodus event was actually revealed hundreds of years before the Exodus event actually took place. And you, if you haven't figured out where that happened, you'll be interested to see where that's located. <clears throat> Um, It occurs in what I believe to be the most important model of covenant prior to Christ and the cross. It therefore has some bearing on our understanding of the objectives contained within the new covenant. And where you find that is in Genesis chapter 15. And Genesis chapter 15 is the classic chapter that we have talked about, which which is Abraham and God making covenant with Abraham, with with the animals that were divided and walking through the blood and and, and God making a covenant with himself, of which Abraham is the beneficiary. So as we've said in our new covenant teaching, that Abraham did not make a covenant with God. Um, God made a covenant with Abraham, but actually the real reality is God didn't make a covenant with Abraham because Abraham never participated in any way. The only participant was God. So therefore God made a covenant with God. God made a covenant with himself, regarding Abraham, so Abraham is a beneficiary of the covenant, not a maker of the covenant. And of course, this fascinating thing that so many people cannot get their um, religious head around, that what you didn't make, you can't break. So it was impossible for Abraham to break the covenant because he never made the covenant. So if you didn't make it, you can't break it. Now, um, of course, when that carries through to our covenant, which is re-emphasized in the new covenant in the blood of Christ, we didn't make a covenant with, with Christ. We didn't make a covenant with God. God didn't make a covenant with us because we weren't participating in it. The only participatory party was God himself. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. So therefore, Because we didn't make a covenant with God, we can't break that covenant, which of course has thrown a whole new light on what constitutes uh, the breaking of relationship with God, which is a very different thing to the breaking of a covenant. So um, I think you get that best illustrated in, in Jesus' parable of the two sons and the father, that that what was broken between the father and the son was not a covenant that the father had with himself about his son because the son never chose to be born, right? We didn't choose to be born. So in the story that we called the prodigal son, which is a bad title, the father's covenant towards the son remains unbroken, which is why when the son leaves, he's still looking for him. And when the son comes back, he still clothes him and brings him back in the house as though he'd never left. 
So the issue here was not a broken covenant, it was simply a broken relationship, but the covenant remained intact. So at any point at which the son returned, he would have the embrace of the father, not the judgment of the father. Now, it fascinates me that having heard Jesus tell that story, how readily the Christian, and particularly the evangelical world, uh, runs to the, to the place of judgment and punishment when actually there was A, no judgment, and B, no punishment towards the son that returned, okay? The judgment had already been made. You're my son, I'm your father. And the moment you walk back, it will be as though you never left. So there are many lessons there, I think, that we have wrestled with as a house about what constitutes um, salvation and uh, how that is applied and how we therefore teach that to people. Uh, what the, the, the top and bottom of it is it's good news, okay? It's really good news. And uh, uh, the gospel's meant to be really, really good news. And when you see it from this angle, it, it's good news. So, so this it, business of Exodus actually occurs back in Genesis 15, hundreds of years before the Exodus will ever happen. Therefore, I propose to you that within the context of the covenant that God made with Abraham, whatever was going to happen in the Exodus was going to be important in the context of the covenant that was being made. Okay? Therefore, Exodus is important not just because Exodus happened, but because when God was making covenant with Abraham, who is our root source of what a covenant is about, because if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, not Moses' seed, Abraham's seed, and heirs of the same promise, then that connection means that understanding the Exodus becomes critically important in our application of new covenant. Does that make sense? Okay. So Genesis chapter 15 uh, comes in two sections really and I just want to run through those and then I'm going to run you through some things that I, um, I drew from the internet that are very good but I want to talk about, about stuff that these people have written. So Genesis 15, after these things the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, do not be afraid Abraham, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. Um, this, is, this is the new covenant language of grace and favor all occurring there. What does God say to him? I am your shield. I am your very great reward. Um, that is the whole language of new covenant. Okay, I am your shield. I am your very great reward. Now, the terminology might change. For example, uh, what Chris preached about um, a few weeks ago, the terminology has changed. Jesus chose the scroll of the prophet Isaiah to read in his first preach ever in the temple, in, in the synagogue. And of course, he read the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, deliver the captives, heal the brokenhearted, bring sight to the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, So the message of new covenant is always uh, the language of grace and, and of favor. It's about God being our shield and our great reward. And uh, the reason I'm pushing this is that sometimes we can become as... Um, academically attached to the truth of new covenant as we were to all the other stuff that we once believed. You're not meant to be academically attached to it. You're meant to be personally, relationally attached to it. And therefore, it frees us to realize that he is our shield and our very great reward. And our expectation, therefore, is to be shielded 
and to experience the greatness of the reward that he has, the year of the Lord's favour, the blessing of God, the exuberant outpouring of favour on our lives. We are people of favour and we have to start more to believe that. We are under the favour of God, not the curse of God. God's not looking at us out the side of his eye thinking, well, I'll wait and see. He's already decided favour on you favor on you. So I want to encourage every one of you to start uh, believing that you are living in favor because when you believe it, it's amazing how you start to see favor uh, begin to unfold. You recognize it. You bump into it. It bumps into you. It chases you. So um, verse 2, Abraham said, Lord God, uh, what will you give me seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus, a guy from Syria, okay, who was the head of his servants, basically. Um, Then Abraham said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. What he was talking about was he had no children. This Eleazar guy, this, this guy from Damascus, this Syrian, had been born in his house, okay, so he was a guy who was not, he was not foreign to Abraham's household, but, but he was not a son of Abraham. So this servant, Eleazar, according to the rules and according to the law, was the one who would inherit Abraham's estate if Abraham didn't have any children. So it's like, you know, just like the whole inheritance thing, you go down through and see who the relatives are. And in this case, if there were no relatives, that the head of the household, this Eleazar, would inherit. Now, I find it interesting that, that God has said, I'm your shield and very great reward. And the thing that concerns Abraham the most, right, in all of that, is, is what will you give me since I'm, I'm childless? And, and, and this guy is going to inherit my estate. Now, I find that fascinating. Um, So it's interesting to me that this should be Abraham's major concern. What I came up with on that is that it's probably the earliest indication that servanthood is not the key to inheritance in God's household. Which is a very, 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 very important lesson because I was taught uh, directly and indirectly that basically servanthood was the key to inheritance in God's household. If you did, you received. You, you got reward for what you did. And we were encouraged to serve the Lord, serve the Lord. You got, you're the servants of God. We were, there was a crazy phrase around. I, I hate it now, I really do. Um, it was around a little bit when I was younger. Not heard it as much recently, although you get it more in America than here. That you were saved to serve. How stupid. That's like, that's like saying, you know, you were married to cook. You know, or a wife saying to her husband, you were married to put shelves up. You know, it's just, when you think about these, these statements that we were told are just stupid. You know, we were not saved to serve. So Abraham has already understood that there is a distinction between a servant and a son, And he's upset because he realized that servanthood is not the way to inheritance. Sonship is the way to inheritance. So what he wants is a son so that he can demonstrate that sons inherit. Okay. So do you understand now why Jesus' emphasis all the time was on our relationship to God being God as Father? 
because he can only be father if you are a child of the father, if you're a son. Now, technically, technically, although um, to be, to be uh, politically correct, we would call ourselves the sons and daughters of God, technically we're not, because in the cultural language, inheritance was only for sons. Daughters never inherited. Daughters got nothing. Sorry, girls. Uh, it's wrong. Thankfully, it's changed. But in that culture, daughters got nothing. So one of the reasons that the, the, the scripture is gender-specific about sons and not daughters is because it's trying to tell men and women, boys and girls, that we are the inheriting class. Okay, So even, even technically in the kingdom of God, women, girls become sons. Now that's not a disrespect to your gender. That, that is saying regardless of your gender, you will inherit because you have been made the sons of God, Okay, the inheritance. They couldn't use the language of daughter in the original text because Daughters didn't inherit it. Would have made the sons and daughters of God would have meant, yeah, well that's fine. We're all born of him, but the sons get everything. See? There was also an issue of firstborn sons as well. The firstborn son got twice what any of the other kids got. Now, it was his responsibility also to take care of his dad, but he got twice. So we have all been made firstborn. Jesus was the firstborn of many brothers of firstborns. So we all get the privilege of a firstborn. We all get the full inheritance um, given to us. So I hope you can see that even reading between the lines here, Abraham's concerned about the right things. He might not know why he's concerned about those things, but he's concerned because something in his spirit is saying, okay, the most important thing to me would be as you as my shield and my reward, the most important thing for me is to have a son, is to have an heir. So he's also thinking, this thing is so amazing, it needs to be passed on. It needs to have longevity. It should not stop at me, is, is another statement that Abraham's really making there. This is great, it should not stop at me. Um, and I think that, that echoes for where we should be. This is great, but it should not stop at me, Okay. So within this, this conversation with God is coming out all these amazing, amazing principles. So verse 4, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, Eleazar, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now towards heaven and count the stars, if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants or your offspring be. Now, um, little clarity on that. Um, when I go outside my house and look up to the sky, um, I can probably count all the stars that I can see um, because of light pollution. Uh, one of the most fascinating things, if it's never happened to you, is, is to go somewhere where there is zero light pollution. Okay, so um, I've been out in the backwoods of Nebraska uh, I've been I've been out in the desert of Arizona, and uh, where there is nothing, you can't even see the light of a house. There's no street lights. There's nothing. It is literally it is pitch black, especially on a night where there's no moon. And you look at the sky, and it it is mind blowing. It is absolutely staggering, because the sky is full of stars. I mean, just 
innumerable numbers of stars up there, in clusters, in singles, I mean, just phenomenal. And uh, when you've had that experience, you realize that Abraham back here is having that experience. There's no light pollution. There's no, no, no light from a city. He's in the pitch black of the desert. And looking up at the sky, he sees the whole thing like a, like a canvas. Just absolutely impossible to count the numbers of stars. So, so God says to him, look, when you see that, that's that's." going to be what your descendants are going to be like. So, so here's my thought on that, that it was mind-blowingly expansive. And that mind-blowing expansiveness is the base model for our concept of God's dealing with us. Our problem is, uh, just like light pollution means you look up at the sky from your house and you can probably see 160 stars, you know, um, if you're lucky. Um, pollution from life so invades our vision that when we look at the promises of God, we do not see mind-blowing expansiveness. We, we, see, we get the same picture of God's promises to us as we see the numbers of stars with light pollution, when actually we have to get ourselves into the place where we are not being influenced by the effect of what life shines upon us, but separated from that, when we look at, at God, we actually see mind-blowing expansiveness. So in line with what we said about the grace and favor that is on our lives, we have to see that at an extent of being mind-blowingly expansive. And I, I think sometimes we lose that, like I said, because we, we get caught up in the technicalities of belief. And um, I said something on Saturday. I said, it's more important to me um, that you have a... Big knowledge of God, and if necessary, a small knowledge of Scripture, then you have a big knowledge of Scripture and a small knowledge of God. Because big knowledge of Scripture doesn't mean big knowledge of God. It just means probably big head. Okay? So, I'm not saying that because I don't want you to become schooled in Scripture. It's good. Read the Bible. Let God speak to you through the Bible. The Bible is good. I love it. I absolutely love it. But I, I have realized that... To have, a, to have a big understanding of God is more valuable than a big understanding of Scripture. If you can have both, that's fantastic. Um, but I know which I prefer, one over the other. So in the context of that grace and favor and, and mind-blowing expansiveness, I, I want you and me and us to really walk ourselves into that kind of concept now of the mystery of God, the fullness of God, the goodness of God, you know, the faithfulness of God, the provision of God, the favor of God, to realize actually we are blessed beyond measure and uh, uh, we, we can be like people who, who um, have the winning lottery ticket but don't want to pull it out of their pocket because they're afraid that maybe the numbers won't match or whatever. You know, we've got, we've got to start to live in that fullness because in it is health and wholeness and life and peace and all the stuff that we need. That's where the miracle power of God flows in that revelation and understanding and he's still there for us for breakthrough. So, verse 6, And he believed in God, the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Of course, this is repeated again in, in Romans 4. He believed God and, he, and God counted it to him 
for righteousness. So we've got the pre-law because the you know the Moses law has not yet been given. Um, righteousness given, not earned. Okay, given, not earned. New covenant model in pre-old covenant experience. So even before the old covenant was given, which was the law and the commandments, we have a new covenant revelation, a new covenant model. Righteousness as a product of belief, not a product of behavior. And again, we can struggle with that sometimes, especially those of us who've been around church for a long time, um, that righteousness is a product of belief and not a product of behavior can come tough because... Because although we said it's, we received this by grace, actually so much of what was laid on our backs and, and weighted on us was a business of works. That righteousness was something that you attained and you achieved and you gained and you could lose it. Uh, when actually righteousness has got nothing whatsoever, nothing whatsoever to do with behavior. Not one single thing to do with behavior. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. Now, I don't want to teach on this because I've said a lot on it, but Jesus was righteous in the same way that Abraham was righteous. Uh, Not by any other means, not because he earned it, not because he was sinless, but because he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. I like to put it this way. Abraham believed that God was who God said that he was, which we don't always believe. We've, We've invented a God. And Abraham believed that he, Abraham, was who God said he, Abraham, was, right? It's those two ingredients. So when you believe that God is who he says that he is, the Abba of Jesus, the father of humanity, and that you are who God says you are, his son, you are righteous. You will never be more righteous. Doesn't matter what your behavior is or isn't, you are righteous. You are righteous, totally righteous in the sight of God. You have right standing before God. So this all comes out in this chapter. So, so we've got this new covenant model coming out, helping us to understand how great and expansive um, that is. And then we go into the second part of this, this chapter. Verse 7, then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, that's where Abraham originated from, which is in present day Iraq, to give you this land to inherit it. Now, I would have a question there, time to debate it fully, but is this land, that statement, is this land purely geographical? That would be a big question I would want to ask. There is a geographical context to it, But is it only and totally geographical? Or is this land also what we've already talked about? The grace, the favor, the exceeding great reward, God being your shield, God being mind-blowingly expansive in what he promises to you. Is that also the land, right, that you have been promised, that that you will inherit? I, I think it is, but we haven't time to chase all those rabbits tonight Uh, and he said Lord God how shall I know that I will inherit it that that all this that you have promised this this land of good things and when you talk about lands understand that allegorically in in picture and examples we're quite able to ask these questions because uh, did the land of Canaan actually have rivers of milk 
and pots of honey, okay? But he said it flows with milk and honey, okay? So they didn't literally walk in and say, wow, all the rivers here are milk, you know, and all the pots here are full of honey. It, it was an analogy. It was a picture of, of the sustenance of milk and the sweetness of honey, okay? So when we talk about this land possibly being more than the geographical measurements of boundaries, we, we have good grounds to, to expand our thinking into that. And so uh, um, when he says, how shall I know that I will inherit it, I believe it means more than just pieces of dirt, okay? This whole promise and the longevity. So that's when God says to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. I brought these all to him, cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. We've been through this story many, many times. Uh, but didn't cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. In other words, uh, it's pretty, it, it's kind of setting the scene that, that what's about to happen is really spectacular. This is a spectacle, okay? Um, I think it's using the terminology it uses to, 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 to make you realize, you know, he wasn't just dreaming about uh, sheep with monkeys' heads chasing, chasing mice, are your dreams like that? <laughs> you know, these weird things that we dream. It's like, wake up, this is significant. So, so we've got this issue that, of course, God, God himself is going to pass through the carcasses, as we've already said. Abraham's going to be asleep while God makes covenant with himself and makes Abraham the beneficiary of the covenant God makes with himself. You know, I can say that a thousand times because every time I say it, it blesses me that that's what God did. Because uh, if he brought me into the equation, I know how long the covenant would last, okay? Um, so he didn't, which is wonderful. So, so as, as this thing's going to be made, then, then it says, so, so Abraham, he falls into this deep sleep. While he's asleep, he has this revelation, this dream, this picture, and this is what he sees. It says, then he said to Abraham, this is, this is in his sleep, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them for 400 years and also the nation whom they serve I will judge and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. That's the exodus, okay? So of all the things that God could have said to Abraham, of all the things he could have dreamt, of all the revelations he could have had, something very specific is chosen, which is to give Abraham a revelation of the exodus that is about to come. Okay? Why? Because that itself is going to form the basis of understanding what the expression of the covenant God is making with Abraham will finally look like. Okay? Now, there are complications with that because beyond the exodus, we get all the shenanigans that go on. We'll talk a little bit about that. But it's like God is saying, this, this represents what I'm about and what I'm about with this covenant with you. Um, now, just a couple of little things 
uh, in there is in verse 14, he says, also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. What's interesting is our our friend, the NIV, the New International Version, and uh, the message makes the same mistake because the Old Testament translation in the message is not as good as the New Testament one. Uh, It does something there that's a little bit naughty. Um, It puts the word punishment. So it says, and also the nation whom they serve, I will punish. The word punish is not there. The word in the Hebrew is the word judge, to judge and to make a judgment. Now, many of you know there's a difference between judging and punishing. Punishing is something that may happen after judgment, but punishing is not judgment, okay? Because I might judge you, but my judgment might be that, yes, you deserve X, but I sentence you to Y, okay? So like we've said with, from John 16, with the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of righteousness. God sees one thing in us, but his conviction is, I convict you righteous. Gavel comes down, end of story. So what has formed that is what Chris talked about, and what I threw a few thoughts in the other week, is that, is that atonement theories that have been developed have affected sometimes, particularly later translations of the Bible, that now because it says judge, they write punish because the only thing they can associate with judgment is punishment. If you're going to be judged, you're going to be punished because you deserve to be punished because we're all, we're all depraved sinners from the start and God is angry with us and God can't look on us so God has to judge us. So whenever they read the word judge, they want to put the word punish. I propose to you that that even though there was some punishment that seems to be manifest in the context of Egypt and Pharaoh, that God was not setting out to punish them, but there was a judgment. The judgment was, will you let my people go? I'd really like you to let my people go. It would be good if you let my people go. Now, there's all stuff in there, theologically, that we have to argue, like it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What does that mean? How does that apply? Um, How much of that is a Jewish version of the story? Uh, how much of it is the real version of the story? Those are all conversations that you can have and think about that I'm not going to resolve for you tonight. Um, I'm giving you a lens to look at those those issues. So, so the nation they serve, I will judge, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. How would you like to wrestle with some of those statements? Sometimes we get so... Again, because we are so fallen man... Uh, angry God, judgment-oriented, we can read scriptures like that in certain ways. Okay, um, The iniquity is the consequence of making comparisons. Okay, Because our word inequality comes from the same root as the word iniquity. Inequality, unequal. You can only find something to be unequal when you compare. So the root problem of iniquity is comparing and coming up with the wrong conclusion. Like when Eve thought, hmm, okay, the serpent says this, God says that, okay? So she compared what was being said and she came up with the wrong conclusion, iniquity, okay? 
So, so iniquity of, of the Amorites can just be that they were faced with choices and may have made some wrong conclusions and, and that brought certain stuff to bear. We haven't got time to talk about all that as well tonight, just not enough time. So I, I think that last statement really is just detail about when the prevailing circumstances which lead up to this event will begin. It was basically saying, stuff's going to happen, then this will start, okay? So it was taking us to the point where, where um, we get to Jacob and we get to Joseph, and then, of course, in Joseph's time is when we get the... Um, the famine, and they go down into Egypt, not first as prisoners. And then uh, later on, of course, the a pharaoh grows up who didn't know Joseph, who'd been the prime minister, and so he's afraid of the people, so he enslaves the people. Now, um, I think the enslaving was unnecessary. I think it's a lesson that if you stay in a place longer than you should stay in that place, you'll finish up as a slave to what it was that you stayed in, okay? Um, because once the famine was ended, should they have stayed in Egypt or should they have gone back to where God said they should have been? So there's a lot of little inner stories that work in there. Anyhow, point I'm trying to make in all this is that here with Abraham and New Covenant, the one thing that God shows him is about the captivity in Egypt and the Exodus. Therefore, it's very important that we understand the Exodus story, okay? So he goes on to say, you know, that it came to pass, the sun went down, uh, appeared a smoking oven and burning torch that passed between the pieces. On the same day, Lord God made covenant with Abraham, saying to your descendants, I'll give this land from there to there to there to there and all these people. And uh, have you ever thought that that could have been a peaceable thing? Okay. But again, that's another story. So, as this will become reality... Um, in the nation we know as Israel, um, and why is why Israel as the source and model? No, let me put this clear. It's as this will become reality in the nation we know as Israel. We have to ask the question: Why Israel as the source and model for the revelation of God, ultimately fully seen in Jesus? Why is why choose Israel? Why do we have to? look at this little nation um, at the end of the Mediterranean as our model. Well, in Deuteronomy 7, um, verse 6 through 8, this, this is what it says. Well, let me read from verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all people. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Or in other words, Israel, it seems, was the model because they weren't the strongest, they weren't the biggest, they weren't the greatest, they weren't the most powerful. And so if God was going to speak to humanity through history, he didn't need a superpower. Now, of course, the, one of the problems with Israel was is that tried, they tried to become a superpower, so that they, like all the other nations, could say, our God is bigger and better and we're now a superpower, which they were never meant to be. They're always meant to be a servant of the nations, a servant of the people, because they were the least. So even when you get to the birth of Jesus and you get prophetic statements like Bethlehem in the land of Judah, though you are not the least among the princes of Judah, out of you will come a governor. So out of this little 
you know, one-horse sheep town, um, uh, Jesus is born, okay? So this principle of then that Paul carries through to say he didn't call the strong, he didn't call the mighty, he didn't call the educated or the knowledgeable, uh, but he used the weak things to confound the strong and he used the, he used the, the, the unwise to confound the wise and, and the uneducated to confound the educated. The same principle goes through um, of, again, this goodness of God taking hold of people who by their own abilities do not qualify and do not have naturally the resources that they need, and God himself living himself in and through them to make them what they could never be and allow them to do what they could never do. Hence the virgin birth, right? It could not come about by natural resource. Hence Abraham and, and Sarah and the child that would be born. He's 100, she's 90, it says past the age of childbearing. This is not going to be resourced from natural resources. Something bigger has to happen. So I hope you're getting encouraged here that the whole principle of the kingdom is built not on the resources that you have because actually your lack of resources is the very qualification that stirs the heart of God to step in and say the 90-year-old and the 100-year-old are having a child. You know, the 16-year-old virgin girl is going to have a baby. That's the whole miracle, okay? So, so that, I believe, is why Israel's at the core of this. I'm saying that because what we're about to talk about really is rooted around Israel as a nation. So having seen the root of the Exodus story, which we found in Genesis 15, this is the importance of it, we now look at its significance through the Jewish mind and how it converts through that thinking into powerful New Covenant truth. So, um, for what little time we've got left tonight, I, I want to just go through uh, a couple of writings that I came across that help to give a little bit of shape and understanding to the history of this and then we'll need to talk about some of the specific elements of the Exodus at another point uh, because they're very important. Paul talks about them and talks about how the children of Israel were our example and where he uses them for our example is the, is the uh, Exodus and post-Exodus events that took place. So let's just talk about this for a minute. Let me read you some stuff. The secret of the impact of the Exodus is that it does not present itself as ancient history. This is through the Jewish mind, okay? So think, think the Jews are all focused on... Exodus is at the core of, of the whole Jewish religious mind. Uh, and of course, that centers on their feast days and that the focus of those feast days is the Feast of Passover. The Feast of Passover specifically celebrates the redemption of the children of Israel from their slavery, their bondage in Egypt to the cruel oppressors, okay? So the secret of the impact of the Exodus, this is in the Jewish mind, is that it does not present itself as ancient history, a one-time event, since the key way to remember the Exodus is reenactment, that's what they do when they have Passover, the event offers itself as an ongoing experience in human history. As free people relive the Exodus, it turns memory into present dynamic. Um, now remember, 
Chris talked about the difference between static belief and dynamic faith. In the Jewish, in the Jewish Passover, they are not celebrating Passover then. They caught the miracle, they celebrate Passover now. So Passover happened then, but it is not then, it is now. In other words, whatever was the key issue of Passover is not something in history, it's something in the present. So it comes to us from history into the present. And and this is the point of it. The experience of slavery that breaks and crushes slaves does not destroy free people. So the whole essence of Exodus is about free people who cannot be crushed by slavery, who cannot be dictated to by slavery. It's all about the breaking of slavery. It's about creating free people. The Exodus was about freedom, setting people free from all their bondage and slavery. Can you see now why God would find it important to say to Abraham, that as I make covenant with you, the key element of this is to set slaves free. It's to bring people out of bondage and into complete and total liberty and to understand that slavery does not destroy free people. One of the things I said to Chris is the worst that can happen when you fully understand the new covenant and you have an exodus experience is that you die a free man. So all of us, all of us, probably, if the Lord doesn't come back, whatever that means and however that will happen, or whatever that will be, we'll, we'll, have, to, we'll have to die one day. But, but we're supposed to die as free men and women, right? We don't die in slavery to death. Remember that death is broken. We were once in slavery to death. But we don't die in slavery to death. We die as free men and women. We die free of guilt free of shame, free of condemnation, free of bondage. We go into whatever lies beyond, into the sleep of of death and into resurrection. We go into that as free people, forever free, always free, never bound by anything. And death, the final enemy, is, is, is destroyed over us. It evokes feelings of repulsion and determination to help others escape that state. So what's driving out here is what it should stir in us is, is a repulsion against slavery of any kind um, and a determination to help others escape that state. So sometimes people wonder, what is the motivation for us if, if we are not now preaching a gospel of you're going to hell, you're under judgment, and if you don't repent right now, you know, you'll be, you'll, for all eternity, you'll be in the never-ending eternal torment. You know, if we're not preaching that to people, if we're preaching the love of God to them, people say, well, what's the motivation? This is the motivation. People are in slavery. Slavery to all kinds of things. All kinds of emotions and wounds and, and, and issues of the past and, and all kinds of bondages. And, and just like in Egypt, Egypt is a wonderful picture of slavery because... Um, uh, any attempt to express freedom resulted in, a, in a, a more cruel response from the one to whom you were in slavery. Now, if you've ever tried to get free of something and you try to break it, you will realize that that thing to which you are a slave reacts to your attempts to get free from its hold on your life. Uh, and this all relates, so it's not just about, you know, 
trafficking people or people in slavery, which is very important and should also drive us because, because justice for people is important in the context of the new covenant. Seeking justice for people, that people be set free, people be allowed to live free. Um, but this relates to every kind of slavery. So, so we should have a repulsion towards slavery, determination to help others to escape that state so that, so that slavery can be broken in every person's life. We're here to help people get free from all the oppressions and depressions and, and condemnations and all the stuff that come on our life is still part of our ministry. By the love of God, in this gospel, we have an exodus message, an exodus message that says the blood has been given, covenant has been made, you can walk out from slavery, you can come into a place of freedom, okay? So he goes on to say, um, of course, as part of the um, Passover meal, they eat bitter herbs um, to remind them of the bitterness of the taste of being in slavery. Oh, I know what else I wanted to say. Uh, one of the things that happened in Egypt was that Pharaoh instructed, because of their push to be free, that they had to make bricks without straw. Uh, no assistance whatsoever to to do what they needed to do to have the approval of the people that they were trying to serve. Um, I'm trying to show you that what happens in our life in every way, that, that Egypt still exists for, for, for people in our world. Egypt is still a reality for people who ought not to be in Egypt. People are having to make bricks without straw and are struggling for all manner of reasons, and that part of our motivation in the Exodus message is that we have been set free and we are here to help people get free, okay? But they don't get free by their own efforts because the children of Israel didn't get free by their own efforts. They got free by their faith, their belief. They believed that God was who he said he was, and they were who God said that they were, and the way was open for them to, to become free. So, so we have to also push that. So as participants eat the bitter herb on the Passover meal, they remember the heartbreaking tale and the death of the children they also remember that slavery gradually conditions people to accept servitude as the norm. That's a great, great line. They also remember that slavery gradually conditions people to accept servitude as the norm. People in slavery, ultimately, that becomes their normality. So when you have been a slave to something, it might be a, a heartbreaking emotion, it might be a disappointment of the past, it might be rejection. Um, what happens is that becomes our norm. And what becomes our norm, we find it difficult not to live in that that's now normality. Okay? So actually, if you look at the history of the children of Israel, and this is why it's such a big lesson, freedom was a problem to them. Because they were not, they were trying to live freedom under the old rules rather than freedom under the new rules, okay? You can't live new covenant under the old rules of what we were raised with. You have to live it under the new rules of this open heaven relationship with God. So when they got out in the desert, they were saying, oh, well, Egypt wasn't that bad. It was horrible. It was a disaster. But because they lived in that servitude so long and then they left it into freedom, they thought, well, it wasn't really that bad, was it? We weren't really that badly treated and the garlic and onions were really quite tasty, weren't they? 
And that's because this is just beautifully put here. Slavery gradually conditions people to accept servitude as the norm. That's what we're working against. The Israelites fell into that trap and were delivered not by their own merit. The lesson is that a slave needs help to get started on liberation. Okay? A slave needs help to get started on liberation. That's our drive now in the gospel. Slaves need help to get started on liberation. We're committed to that. We're doing that. That's the message we're bringing to people. We're saying we're going to get you started on the road to liberation. Part of that means this thing called salvation. However we interpret that, it means, it means being brought back into God restoring us to what we should be. Okay, Whole restoration. Now in the cedar ritual, the cedar is the... S-E-D-E-R is the Passover meal ceremony that the Jews celebrate. So in the, in the, in the cedar, I've lost my place here. Oh, in the cedar ritual, the family acts as the transmitter of memory. The past is not excised, but becomes an active part of the lives of the participants. Parents tell the story to children. At the same time, the children are not merely dependent. This is in the Jewish household and the Passover meal. They ask questions and participate in the discussion. So the objective with the kids is to get them to ask questions and participate in the discussion. Do you see now, the model that we have adopted is actually a very good, not a Western Greek-minded model, It's very much connected to the whole process of understanding the Exodus story because this is what you did. They must become involved for it is essential that they join in the unfinished work of liberation. So we join that conversation because it's essential that we participate or join in the unfinished work of liberation. That's what we're doing when we converse. When we sit in the back with the tablecloths and the pens and we discuss, we are joining in the unfinished work of liberation for ourselves, for our world, for those in need. And this is the Exodus model, okay? This is why when Pharaoh offered to let the adult Jews leave Egypt to worship God if the children were left behind, Moses rejected the offer. With our youth and elders we will go. Why? Because it's, 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 it's not profitable for me, Chris, Jenny, Joel, Dave, whatever, to just do our thing, right? In the context of that, the children need to go with you. We all need to go together. We all need involved in the conversation so that we all become the bringers of liberation to people out of the liberation that we have received. And it helps us to grasp it and understand it. And the point here was that you become part of that, that deliverance process. You become part of it. And it becomes not something then, it becomes something now. So uh, the Cedar Order is deliberately designed to hold the children's attention, to fascinate them with their people's history so that they will feel impelled to take up the covenantal task. Thus, by the magic of shared values, I love that, by the magic of shared values and shared story, the Exodus is not some ancient event, however important, it is the ever-recurring redemption. That's the point of Exodus. It's supposed to be an ever-recurring redemption. 
Exodus was never meant to be a one-off event. It was meant to be the illustration of the event of covenant. Okay? So in the children of Israel, we have a physical story with Egyptians and Israelites and Red Sea and desert and all that stuff that actually that's only to illustrate to us, like, like an illustrated child's storybook, that's the words and the pictures put together, but it's saying to us that this is an ever-recurring redemption. Okay? We, are, we have become an exodus people, and our deliverance through the new covenant, and, and that's why it was mentioned to Abraham, when covenant was made, we became an exodus people. Okay? At that moment for us, there was the right to walk out of slavery. And, and we, we in that did not have to earn that right. We did not have to bring that about by our own effort. It was something we received and accepted and walk into. So, so Exodus is important in the context of New Covenant for this very reason. Let me read that again. By the magic of shared values. I love that phrase. The magic of shared values and shared story the Exodus is not some ancient event, however important, it is the ever-recurring redemption. It is the event from ancient times that is occurring tonight. It is the past and future redemption of humanity. The Exodus is the most influential historical event of all time because it did not happen once but recurs whenever people open up and enter into the event. That's what we would now call with our terminology the rest of the finished work of Christ. So when, when, when the writer of Hebrews says in, in, in chapter 3 and 4, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God that if Joshua had taken them into it in Canaan, that would not, we would not be talking about it. But the rest he's finished is the finished work of Christ. When Jesus said, it is finished, is where we come uh, and enter into with this recurring feast. So, so if we were Jews, which we're not, and if we were celebrating Passover, which we're not, we would not be celebrating it as something then we would be celebrating it as something now, and that is still the case in a, in, a, in a real Jewish family household. They don't believe Exodus was then. Well, they do believe Exodus was then, but they believe we're not celebrating Exodus then, we're celebrating Exodus now. So how much more then should we not be an Exodus people? Okay, so just a couple more things. Um, uh, this translation of the events that I've just read is according to a totally Jewish model that's void of any New Covenant application. But if you understand New Covenant, you only have to read that Jewish model and you can see New Covenant screaming at you straight out of every, every, uh, every statement. Um, now, it's also important to note that Israel's revelation was through history, not through Scripture. This, this is just a little side issue um, when this was being celebrated, they did not have any scriptures because scriptures had not been put together. So their revelation was through history. It was through the understanding of what had happened and therefore what it meant. Um, they witnessed the redeeming of history, not scripture. Hence the importance of Exodus in their developed thought. So here's the issue. They were not trying to justify some scriptural text 
what they were looking at was history had slavery in it and we're redeeming history. So they weren't trying to redeem text, they were redeeming history. Now, now here's our thing, we are not here to redeem sacred text, we're here to redeem history. That history is people's lives, people's experiences, people's Egypt, people's slavery, okay? So you should know by now, our battle now with with people is not, you know, here's a chapter and verse and I'll throw this verse at you and here's a scripture, important though that may be, our important understanding is the history of people, okay? And so they were redeeming history, We were brought into captivity, but we were redeemed. Our history has been redeemed. Our history was slavery, but it has been redeemed. Our history was bondage, but it has been redeemed. Our history was hardship, but it has been redeemed. So that becomes then our our focus of developed thought. One other thing that I uh, I downloaded and read that I I just want to bring in closing, and then we'll have said enough um, enough for tonight. A guy wrote the importance of the Exodus to Israel at the revelation of God as Father. Now, um, I partly agree with him and partly disagree with him, but I understand the point he was trying to make. Um, but, but let me read you some of his statements here because what he says is quite good. Um, this essay, it was an essay, explains and elucidates the following statement. The Exodus is such a significant event in Israel's history that it serves as more than just an account of one of the wandering in the desert. It's a paradigm, a paradigm, a pattern, a, a measurement point of how God deals with his people, signifying the formation of relationship. In this essay, it will be shown that the Exodus was of great importance to Israel and that the Exodus, God reveals that in the Exodus, God reveals himself as a father and that this intimate relationship carries on into the future. I would question that in certain points, but that, that would be a debate for that, that, um, uh, that person himself. Exodus is a Latin word that is derived from exodos, which appears in the Septuagint, which is one early translation of the Old Testament. It means exit and is used to refer to both the biblical book and similar, similarly the text, the exit of Israel from Egypt, the wandering in the desert, and he says the giving of the law, but again, I would question that that's part of it. I think it's the exit from Egypt and the wandering in the desert. The giving of the law is a different category. In this essay, the term Exodus is used to refer to the events surrounding the exit of Israel from Egypt rather than the book itself. Before looking at why the Exodus was so important to Israel, it is worth considering how ordinary people before and after the time of Exodus viewed the supernatural, in particular the ancient myths from Mesopotamia and Egypt. The Akkadian myths coming from Mesopotamia were known throughout the Near East from the mid-second to first millennium. These tales would have been told in Sumerian, Hittite, Hurrian and Hebrew. There were four different languages of the time and cultures. So would have been familiar to the Israelites. Similarly, Egypt was a powerful nation that had been united since 3000 BC as the dominant force in the Near East and the place where Israel itself had spent several hundred years, the beliefs of the Egyptians would also have been well known to Israel. 
In the Akkadian tale, Atrahasis, typical of many creation accounts, man was created as a slave. The lesser gods were tired of the much work they had to do and there was a rebellion. I love this bigger gods, higher gods, lesser gods and all that. To solve the problem for the lesser gods who were getting tired because they felt they had too much work from the bigger gods, to solve the problem, man was created to do the work. Later, man is considered a pain because of the noise he creates. And the gods send a flood to wipe man from the face of the earth. So you'll find issues like the flood story and what have you in in other religious writings than the Bible, which again poses questions about our interpretations of that, but you shouldn't be afraid, okay? So this this again is the this is the um the the Akkadian uh version. Um so from the flood okay, there there were many gods and they were all far from perfect. That also is just mind-blowing. And you see that also in the Greek culture and Roman culture. And and in Indian culture. And certainly not good or loving. In Egypt, the gods were responsible for everything. Many people of the time would have logically concluded that the reason Egypt was stronger than any other nation was because because its gods were stronger. Into this background, Yahweh shows up and unlike the gods of Egypt, reveals his name, Uh, to Moses, it must have been a remarkable shock when a new God turned up, credited with creating the world, uh, is put out of action, Um, uh, oh oh, sorry, the God, uh, yeah, uh, credited with creating the world, I missed that bit, yeah, Uh, and overturned the long known and trusted gods. The god of the sun, Aton-Ra, which was Egypt, credited with creating the world, is put out of action. The Nile, the basic source of life for Egypt, considered to be divine, is turned to blood. Um, Also the Pharaoh, considered a god, meets his match and against his wishes has to let the Israelites go. Can you see how even within the plagues there are things that are explained by how it challenges their their god concepts? Um, also, okay. In contrast to the Akkadian tales, listen to this, this is the point. Rather than creating slaves, God delivers the people from slavery. That's the contrast, okay? In the Akkadian tales, rather than creating slaves, God delivers the people from slavery. That's the USP. That's the unique selling point that we have a God who's not mad with his people who doesn't have underlings, who play tricks, and who rather than bringing people into slavery and making them servants, delivers people from slavery and makes them his sons and his friends. That's the ungodlike God, okay? Beginning to shine through. Also, he cares for his people, providing food and water for them and brings them into a new land flowing with milk and honey. (coughs) Excuse me. How interesting then that they should become subject to a new kind of slavery under the law. That having been delivered from slavery, they found themselves in a different kind of slavery under the law, which we have found ourselves in the development of our faith having to wrestle with 
And Paul, Paul talks about it, that you have become slaves to the law, just like we were. So Exodus is very important in the context, not just outside of the church community, but inside the church community, because we simply exchange one slavery for another kind of slavery and done what Jesus said the Pharisees did. He said, you take burdens and you put them on men's backs Right, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that, keep this ceremony, don't dress that way, do this. And then he says, you don't lift a finger to help them. And then, of course, the classic, he said, and you turn them into twice the sons of hell that you are. And then Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Learn of me. So the fact that Exodus is important to Israel can be seen in many ways. The first obvious way is through the sheer number of times it is referred to in the Old Testament. The term out of Egypt appears 142 times in the Bible. Out of, so therefore, out of Egypt is, is a very important phrase. Why? Because it's pointing us to the Exodus. The Exodus was connected to the covenant. Therefore, the major work of the covenant, once that has been made, which has got nothing to do with us in its making, our major work is to become part of an exodus, to promote an exodus, to bring an exodus, to preach an exodus, to be an exodus people, so that slavery in all its ways, body, soul and spirit, mind, emotion and action, is broken in people's lives and they come to a place of freedom where we don't make the mistake like the children of Israel of then substituting that for what is the law and legalism and guilt and condemnation and punishment as a replacement for that. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So, uh, last, last thing, and we're, we're done. Um, Exodus chapter 6 is where the Exodus is beginning and God is speaking to Moses. And I've mentioned this before, but it is so important. Uh, in verse 3 of Exodus chapter 6, it says, I appeared to Abraham. It says Isaac and Jacob, but we won't bother with that for the moment. I appeared to Abraham. Then in verse 5, he says, I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel. That's his, that's his compassionate care. Whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Okay. Therefore, what? Because he's compassionate towards our groanings and our bondage. Because he appeared to Abraham, which is important because he showed us that the covenant was made with himself on our behalf. We are beneficiaries. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. It's, it's called the I wills, okay? It's the I wills of Exodus. I will. It's all I will. I will. I will. I will. When that passes through our filter and we then begin to teach it, it becomes the you must, you must, you must, you must, okay? That's the contrast, Everything, you will, you will, you will, you must, you must. That's when we get out of the Exodus model. But if we live in the Exodus model, everything is I will, I will, I will. I will bring you out from the bondage of Egypt. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. I will take you. I will be your God. 
It starts in grace with I will, but for these people you're going to see it ends in law with you must. They should have stayed in grace. If they had stayed in the revelation of Exodus, they would have remained in the I wills of God, living under a covenant that could not be broken because they never made it, and realizing that in that covenant they had this expansive stars of the heaven, exuberant, amazing, stupendously huge, massive favor and blessing on their life of one who said, I am your shield and I am your reward. But not reward that comes from what we've done, but reward that comes from favor, the favor, reward of favor that says, I'm going to reward you. Why are you going to reward you? Because you're under my favor. That's where living in the Exodus model leaves us. And that's why we've got to get people living in an Exodus experience. That the objective of the new covenant is to bring people to live in the Exodus experience. Now, when we study this a little more, you'll see that what happened is because they did not want to live with the I wills of God, and the covenant made on their behalf, and the favor given to them, but wanted to be something like all these other nations that they thought that they were, they shifted into a dimension that took them to a religious concept of what had been a relational experience, which turned then into the Jewish religion, turned into the law, and turned into all the thing that Jesus said, I hate this, I hate what you've made this, what you've made this, Grieves my heart. So if you remember, Jesus' harshest words were never towards a prostitute or a tax collector or a Samaritan or an outsider or a heathen or a Syrophoenician or a Roman. Never, 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 never. Never to a thief. His harshest words were always to the religious people who had taken this experience and turned it into something that in, in his eyes was absolutely obnoxious because instead of lit people being left to live in freedom, it brought people back into another kind of slavery and bondage. So we had Egypt all over again, but now Egypt wasn't done by the god Ra and, and the deity Pharaoh in the land of Egypt with its pyramids. It was now done by the priests and the Levites, and the teachers of the law, and the Pharisees, and the religious people who had this revelation now turned it back into a slavery and a bondage, which is why when Jesus comes to reiterate the covenant that was made in Abraham, and it's his broken carcass, that God passes through, God in Christ reconciling the world to himself, he says, what you guys need is another exodus, but you need to learn this time to live in the exodus, free from the law, free from the bondage of religious institution, but living under now the Abba, the Father, the revelation of you're a son of Abba, and that now we see him not as another God or even a God, but as we look at the deity of who he is, we don't see him as God, we see him as Father. And so everything changes to keep us living in an Exodus experience. So I hope that's helped you to understand why Exodus is so important in the context of our understanding New Covenant and why it became so important at the core of the Jewish religion and still is. But remember we talked on Saturday about missing the point. 
But then they've missed the point. They've allowed that to be swallowed into a bigger, wider religious concept of nationalism and their own identity rather than realizing that they were the small and the least because they were meant to come and be the sons of God to the world to bring the story of, 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 of uh, exodus, of redemption from captivity and bondage and let that be their whole message. That's our message, guys. We do have a message. We are not redundant because we have adjusted some of our viewpoints about the work of the cross. We have come to a greater sense of necessity because we are here to bring exodus to the people. Because of what Christ has done through the finished work of Christ when Jesus said it is finished, we say now there is an exodus for you. You can come out. We call them out and we take them out knowing that just like in the exodus, every enemy that tries to chase you will be drowned in the sea. And as you leave that place, there'll be fire by day, there'll be fire by night, there'll be a cloud by day, there'll be manna on the floor, there'll be the provision and the love and the kindness and the goodness of God to take us on. So we don't need to bring them into law, we just need to bring them into the freedom of the new covenant. So there you go. <coughs> Let's just give thanks. Father, we give you thanks that... Um, this really is a great salvation and uh, we, we want to be good, good stewards of what you've delivered into our lives. Help us to somehow resist the temptation to introduce into the purity of what is this wonderful covenant and this exodus experience all the nonsense that somehow crept in in the first place of of wanting to achieve and, and, and wanting to earn and wanting to prove ourselves and we just come before you say, I'm, I'm happy that you said I will. I am, I am, I stand in awe that you've said I will, I will, I will, I will. I receive that. I thank you that you're helping me to live under that and live in that. But let that be our message to people because we want to see thousands just even in this city stepping out of what is still their bondage to their Egypt but knowing that they can come out not just with freedom but coming out as you did there that they came out blessed they came out favored they came out uh, richer than that when they went in they came out with all the spoils and we're believing that lord for ourselves and for our city in jesus name amen, amen. all right we're done bless you good thanks for listening you might not be aware that The Rock is funded completely through donations from people like yourself. So if you feel like you're part of our community, it would be great if you could make a contribution by visiting our website at www.rockofyork.co.uk and just click on the donate button for more information. Thanks again. Thanks again.